today's guest, Oliver Maniolovic, VP Sales from Personio. If they have no reason to do all of these things that they need to do, then they won't do them. That's, that's a very fundamental element. And regardless of your salary, you can't, you, can't, you can't inject them. So one of my most important questions in the interview process is, what is motivating you? Why, like, why are you getting up in the morning? Or if this wouldn't be there, would you stay in bed? Because people then often say, oh, I want to make the customer happy. That's good. You know, like that's on a, on a certain level, a good motivation, but that's not the core motivation why people get up. Like, so if you couldn't make the customer happy, you would stay in bed and not get up. No. Okay. So I'll try to dig around that. So motivation is one piece. The other piece is uh, the ability to learn, to learn fast. Um, the third piece is coachability. Uh, you need to be able to learn through others because if you're not coachable, if you're, if you're defensive on feedback from others, uh, you have a disadvantage. Um, then, um, and these are things that you probably um, have to a certain extent but can develop further, is tenacity and grit. So when things get hard, you still need to keep going. You know, there's always a saying, the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is simply that the successful person, like, got up once more after they fell down. And in sales, that's like 100% true. Um, and then um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of you need to be dedicated to do what's necessary. Uh, and when I mean what's necessary, obviously in moral and ethical boundaries, uh, you shouldn't do stupid things. Um, but, you know, when, you, when, when, the, when the months or the quarter is closing, you know, and I had negotiations with, with CEOs until up to, I don't know, 11.59 p.m. And we got the contract in at 11.59 p.m. on the last day. So if you, if you turn off your notebook at 6, 7 o'clock and say, okay, let's call it a day, like I tried everything to get in, then actually you're missing a couple of hours. And, you know, when you're in, in, a, in an environment like us, you need to compress time as much as possible. So if you don't go those steps, you'll lose. So that's, that's a very important thing. Oliver and I met in Munich four years ago at the Salesforce Munich office when he just started recently at Personio and introduced a rolled out Salesforce. And um, we talked a lot about his background, how he got into sales and also the difference of sales in Europe versus in the US because he also has a very um, strong background in enterprise sales of um, companies like GitHub and um, New Relic. And at some point he moved to Personio and then scaled them from 500 to more than 10,000 customers as a VP sales. Um, how he went through different phases of expansion, restructuring teams, hiring, learnings, um, and also how he differentiates high performers for maybe regular or average performers and also his recent time as an angel investor in the HR tech space and um, in generally about certain learnings of his career. So check it out and um, have fun. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, Thomas. How are you doing? 
Well, I'm fine. I just had a morning walk and looked forward to our podcast. Oh, that's good. That's a good start into the day. Very nice. Yes. And um, it's a long time when we met last time. I think it was four or five years ago in Munich at the Salesforce office where Personio was still small. And um, I think I also discovered first um, firsthand what Salesforce can do <laughs> because mm -hmm. we tried to hire some Salesforce engineers for a software company. And then I wanted to understand the field better. And this is where we sat next to each other, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think it's four years or hang on. No, it is. It is four years ago because we implemented Salesforce um, about four years ago. And um, that, that, that must have been around that time. Yeah, nice. And do you still have it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, yes, yeah, Salesforce, um, uh, like I don't mean to be, how to say, disrespectful of what they've achieved as a company. I think uh, they've, like, as they, like, also call their group, they're trailblazers in this SaaS world and they're a role model for, for many companies, for many startups. And I think they've, they've achieved tremendous things. Um, But uh, also, um, like from a from a pure user perspective, sometimes I would would wish for something a little bit more modern, uh, because the world has changed since then, and they have changed too. But uh, maybe maybe that should evolve at a at a quicker or higher rate. Yeah, I totally understand. So maybe before jumping into some topics, could you give us a bit more context about your background and what shaped you most? Uh, yeah, happy to do so. Um, I mean. Um, <laughs> uh, in German, sometimes uh, you would call people uh, old rabbits or old dogs. So I'm already for a while in this whole game. And um, uh, but I, but I probably need to start with a few um, like let's say pointers uh, even earlier before I went into SaaS because um, when when people ask me what do I do, then I say uh, typically I'm I'm a seller or I'm in sales um, because still in Germany sales is a is a little bit of a no-go area um, you know when people go to university there's no sales study there's no education in that direction there's only one university in, jo uh, in germany uh, which is bochum uh, who has a, a you know a master in sales management mm. uh, all others are focusing on marketing or product or engineering which is also very important but i feel like there's a lack um, in sales and it's represented in our overall uh, society and therefore I, i try to be very very simple and pointy on that um, because I, I started selling quite early. I, I mean, my parents had a restaurant and I was brought up there. And, um, you know, when you, when you work in such a little restaurant, which I also had to do as a, as a, as a teenager, um, then, um, then obviously you learn to interact with customers, with clients. You already kind of like get a very early education into sales because you obviously they ask them, hey, would you something recommend? What, what's a good dish today? And then you're like, okay, uh, what do we have today? And uh, I think that's that's a starting point. And then um, my first actually like outside of my family business professional sales job was selling uh, American Express credit cards at the oh. airport in Frankfurt. So that's a, that's a <laughs> I would say, um, um, It's, it's a very controversial job. I think people, um, you know, perceive those people who are doing this as very, very annoying, you know, when they approach them on the airport. But you, you, I think most people don't understand how many people actually, I don't know how it's now, but like when I did it, how long is it ago? Like 20 years, uh, 20 years ago when I did it, how many people actually like stop and subscribe for a credit card? 
So, and you could make good commissions with that. So that was for me, a very fascinating thing. I was always triggered by, Hey, if I do a lot, if I perform well, if I deliver results, I get more than someone who doesn't perform well, who doesn't deliver results and so on. So I think that's, that's been a, a like a driver through my upbringing, um, uh, very much. And then I had different ways uh, also during my university. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, in Germany, Bankkaufmann, like a, 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 I have a vocal apprenticeship in, in, in banking. Um, and then post that I went to studies. Uh, I didn't finish my studies because I was simply always distracted with working projects, like doing sales jobs here, doing business development there. And then I said, okay, look, uh, this is pointless. Uh, like either you cut down all the uh, side projects um, or you stop studying and go full-time uh, working. And I took the latter um, and ended up in a software company a little bit by accident. Um, I had two offers, one from a very well-known German company, uh, uh, but in a more boring field, uh, security for logistics. Uh, sorry, maybe not boring field, but a field that didn't um, excite me so much. I think in itself, there's a lot of interesting things. And when we look what happened with e-commerce, probably also a very interesting sector. But it, to me, appeared less exciting than software, which I felt like is the future. And then I decided for, for the software job. And um, I think one thing that's relevant to that is the software job at the time was paid worse than the job at this big German corporation. <laughs> so I accepted an offer that had 15% less in cash and didn't include a company car. And when you're like mid twenties, you're like, Oh, company car. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> I made it. Uh, but obviously, uh, that's, that's just part of it. And I wanted to be in a more dynamic or more, more, um, exciting environment. And now I'm 16, 17 years in this software cloud SaaS business with different stages. Uh, the first company I worked for was Borland and, um, then a few others. And before I joined Personio, I worked for companies like GitHub and New Relic, uh, which some people might know as well. Um, yes. Rel relatively prominent uh, scale-ups uh, from the US. But I also, also I think, very strong in enterprise sales, right? Because otherwise you, you cannot sell in, in, in Europe as a US company if you don't nail sales, B2B sales. So you mean the companies were in enterprise sales or... Mm -hmm. or um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, how to put it? I think I think there's two sides to it. A, the U.S. companies have a stronger sales culture based on their society and how their society works. So when you say to someone in the U.S., um, I'm in sales, uh, people are mostly pretty appreciative uh, in comparison or in contrast to what you have here in Europe. Um, and then the other piece is... Um, when it comes down to technology, there are a couple years, maybe even a couple of decades ahead of many things that are happening in Europe. I mean, we're playing catch up in some areas. Um, but uh, for a while, you didn't have B2B SaaS companies coming out of Germany or even Europe. That was mm -hmm. something that only came from the US. So if you wanted to be in that field, the only option was to work for a US company. And with that, only US companies would offer such products. So yes, there, there were challenges selling in Europe, but I would say um, sometimes there were no alternatives. And um, unfortunately, I never worked for a company where there was no alternative to our product. <laughs> that would have been easy. But I think that was also part of the upbringing. So the first company I worked for was in decline, had an average product at a premium price point. So 
that was really selling. You couldn't just collect the 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 the, the orders at the fax machine, as we would say. <laughs> you actively had to, you know, like work with the customer and convince them that you would bring the most value over a competitor. What what frameworks did you use back then? Was it maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago? Because I think there was no challenger sale or spin model established or something like this. I think solution sales was um, was uh, popular at the time. I think spin was definitely around. Uh, challenger, I'm not sure if 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 it was already popular, but I I think it must have been around the block somewhere as well. At least more in the US. I mean, not many things made it to Europe. Um, but um, also like when I started at this first company, like the process was, okay, the solution engineers would explain you the product, which was really nice because then, you know, like you could go into conversations and really understand it deeply, but it was not like a programmatic approach. It was more like, okay, this guy is good in this product. This guy is good in this product and so on. So therefore each will spend with you one or two hours. And then there you go. Um, we had sometimes some, f a bit more like, I don't know when we had kickoffs or something like that, a bit more enablement, but it was not super kind of like structured or uh, 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 focused. It was more like generalistic, uh, but the approach was, okay, Oli, uh, look, you're now in inside sales. So there was no SDRs at the time. So I was like an SDR, but could close my customers that I would prospect. And we had Salesforce as well. And, um, uh, um, basically my, my boss told me every account that is not associated to another uh, account executive is yours. And that, that was literally like giving me the yellow pages and saying, okay, look, find your business. And then I had to call and prospect and try to figure out how to approach those uh, people. So no LinkedIn yet where you could find um, prospects more easily or with more information. No. Uh, 15 years ago, I think the, the German LinkedIn population was very small. Even Xing was, was uh, underutilized. Um, and yeah, no, like no, 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 no things like that. I mean, I, I still argue that, uh, LinkedIn is, 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 uh, not a main source of business, but maybe a flank, like a, like an adjacent source of business, because many companies, if you're not selling just to startups and modern companies or enterprises, if you're selling to very traditional companies, many of them don't have LinkedIn, or at least they're not as present as, you know, typically sellers or recruiters or, you know, the people who are trying to make a living on that. Yes, I, I agree. And how did you then end up at Personio? What's the, the, the backstory behind that? Um, I don't think it's super kind of like crazy or something like that. But um, after, after I think like five, six years working for US companies, I started to think about why is there no German or European B2B business that wants to capture um, uh, conquer the world? Because that was around the time when Zalando, Delivery Hero and so on became bigger and with that more visible and prominent. And, um, but there was no B2B. So like I couldn't go to Zalando and say, hey, I want to now sell fashion just because I like the fact that you're coming out of Germany. I wouldn't have any, you know, like value add for Zalando, or at least that's what I thought. Um, and then I looked around and saw a few startups, talked to a few over the, throughout a few years. Uh, some were interesting, but none of them really convinced me. And then at some point in time, I got connected uh, or contacted by a headhunter. Um, you know, talking to me about Personio. And um, I took a look at it and that hmm, interesting. They really have a fresh approach. Like the website was just reworked. Like I think 
just a couple of weeks beforehand, if I would seen the old website, I probably wouldn't have been excited about it. So, you know, that's uh, like, there's those, those details, you know, like that catch you. It's not just this one big thing. Um, and then I uh, like came back to the recruiter and said, Hey, it would be interesting to have a call with them. And then they somehow kind of like uh, waited a couple of days. I didn't hear back from them. And then I wrote them again and I'm like, Hey, listen, I really want to have a call with them. And then things were set in motion and, um, the rest is a little bit history. I got to know Hanno, the other founders, the other management team, some of the investors. And we went through a thorough interview process where, you know, I assessed them uh, and they assessed me. And then we figured could work out. In case you like my show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Was Martina already there at that time? I know she joined actually the same month with me. Uh, like uh, we joined April 2018. Okay, and what was the environment? It was around then 50 people? I don't have the exact number. 50, 60, 70 could be around that. So, And what were the revenue um, numbers? Can you share rough numbers? <sighs> We had 500 customers at the time. Let's put it this way. So. Yeah. Um, don't, don't know exactly what the revenue was and, uh, I'm not sure, like we don't talk publicly revenue numbers, but, uh, we had five, 500 customers. And now how many customers do we have now? 10,000. Okay. Let's, let's go a bit through that journey on how the sales org developed over time in stages to go from 500 to more than 10,000 customers. Yeah. Happy to do so. How did you start? Um, I think I just started, let's put it this way. So I came in and Hanno told me, okay, look, uh, we're mostly inbound driven and we want to add outbound and potentially partnerships at some point in time, um, to kind of like generate business, generate pipeline and things like that. And, um, we knew already that, uh, we would, we would have to grow the team significantly. I don't think I would have anticipated. I mean, now my team that is only focused on Germany, Austria, Switzerland is 180 people just doing new business sales. So that's not even including the people who are taking care of existing customers. There's another team on top of that. Um, and at the time when I joined, it was seven or eight people. So um, significant growth. And um I didn't know that we would have to go there, but I knew we have to go to, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 people for sure. And as I've been in other companies and also in leading positions where I had to hire teams, I knew about the challenges that bringing in people, hiring people is really, really difficult because sellers, especially the ones who are a bit more experienced, they're typically really good at selling themselves. Um, and some of them are really good at selling everything else on top of that, but some of them are really just good at selling themselves. And um, I felt like a big, big key to that is motivation. So why do people want to do something? And um, there's a little, I don't, I don't want to say it's like, it's, it's a given. I think people who are more tenured can also be very hungry and driven. But it tends to be that people, as they progress through their careers, they had some achievements, they get less hungry, they get less driven, they get less motivated to really do the necessary things. So my mind shifted very quickly for many reasons like, okay, we need to build a team out of young people that we hire from university or people that come from, you know, 
we hired recruiters, for example, to become um, account executives uh, because they knew the space, HR, they knew how to sell. Recruiting, in essence, That's is more, it's nothing else. And we, we even uh, hired a guy who uh, sold um, uh, duplex carports uh, beforehand. Um, I mean, not that this is kind of like outrageously funny, but he was an outrageously funny person. Um, he's now a founder himself. So he went through our sales school and now moved on into starting his own business. And And I love those stories, you know, like I love when, you know, something happens and uh, throughout a few years, you see how people transform. So, and that, that was the intent. So we wanted to hire people, educate them around sales, um, teach them everything that we think is important, um, especially when it comes down to prospecting, generating outbound cold pipeline. That's a, that's a skill where many people are not good at still doing sales because they never got a good um, education around it. And they never got really used to it because it's very unpleasant doing outbound prospecting, cold calling. Don't get me wrong. Like it's not, it's not like the worst thing you can think of. But it's hard. It can be sometimes super, super tough, especially mentally. And you need to have an environment that kind of like supports people doing it. How, how does this environment look like for outbound that you can really support each other? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's uh, in, in, at, at a core, it's the team itself. So you need to have a group of people who have a mutual mission And you need to mix that team with rookies and more senior people. So uh, because if you just have rookies or if you just have seniors, it gets imbalanced. If you have a more mixed set of tenures, you know, there will be people who have seen the struggles that others are just going through right now and um, they can help them. And especially, you know, when uh, everything went into lockdown during COVID, that was a very, very challenging time for us and for those people who are doing that because some of them were just, you know, like graduates and in Munich, uh, cost of living is relatively high. So they would sit in a one bedroom apartment, not even in a, in a communal apartment, but like really like a student apartment where kitchen, living room, bathroom is literally like in one room. And out of there, they have to do cold calling uh, into people who are currently as well, completely like crazy in terms of like, oh, the world is, is turning upside down. We don't know how to survive. And now you want to sell me software. Um, yeah, that's my job. I mean, and by the way, this software can actually help you to go through that time that you're just uh, passing through. So that's the reason why we feel like it's very relevant that we talk. But Obviously, uh, not all of those conversations were very constructive. And as people were then isolated, they didn't have the support system, the support group um, that they would have before. And that was, for example, the first team that we brought back to the office or allowed in smaller groups uh, to come back to the office so that it's in a, let's say, controlled, contained environment. And how does a prospecting job look like at Personio? Huh. It's uh, it's depending on where you are, but um, when you when you start as an SDR, um, you have, you know, many people have then the goal to become an AE, which is very like fair. It's kind of like part of that whole journey, uh, the career outlook. Um, you know, not like there's very few people who want to stay like make an entire career being an IC as an SDR. But I've seen people like that as well. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a matter of preference because some people enjoy it more, others less. Um, so you start typically with smaller customers. Uh, you get training. Uh, we have probably a month of uh, 
onboarding where we don't expect a lot of, you know, like results from your side, but where we invest in product enablement, process enablement, sales enablement, different things. Um, and then, uh, like we, we, we bring you to, to, uh, to the outside world and allow you to do your first learnings because that's the most important thing you have to do and experience what you're doing. Um, I always, uh, you know, some people say sales is science, sales is art. I think it's both. I think it's craft, you know, it's like building a table. So people can teach you how to build a table. Um, so technically it might be perfect, but whether it's, uh, you know, like beautiful and whether it's durable or, you know, like inspiring, that's up to you, you know? So there's a scientific part and there's a artistical part and therefore, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no kind of like dark magic around it. Everything is actually pretty clear, structurable and, and, and articulable, and you can bring it together. And that's what we're trying to bring to the group. But the most important piece, uh, when you go into sales, you have to uh, embrace uh, failure because you have to develop a resilient mindset. And the only way how you can develop a resilient mindset is if you fail often. And that's one thing. That's also what I say in interviews. You will fail more than you win. That's the nature of sales. That's like, I don't know any salesperson or especially any, not any good salesperson who throughout their career has won more than they lost in terms of like deals. Obviously, they probably made their numbers. They probably made their targets. They overachieved and so on. They made a good living. But that doesn't mean that they didn't lose. Mm -hmm. Actually, they lost quite a lot to get to that point where they are. Um, and that's kind of like the entry where you go. And then there's different things, different like on which sector or which segment you work. There might be more a transactional element or you're a little bit more deeper into accounts. So uh, it's really dependent on where you then end up, um, uh, like let's say your past six, first six months. So you're structured by function and the functions are, functions are then again structured by region and by industry and by company size or customer target size? Very, very broadly said, yes. We don't do so much industries. We have, for example, like um, a public sector team or um, a public slash non-profit sector team. That's how much we go into sectors. The rest is just private companies and then by size and by region. Mm, totally makes sense. And when was the time where you need to um, expand the sales force out of Germany, the home market? I mean, we were always um, active in Austria and Switzerland from the get-go because of the language, uh, you know, proximity. Uh, and then in 2019, we started to um, to internationalize, uh, to move into other markets. We also acquired a company in Spain. Um, so um, that was kind of like a natural um, expansion logic because we had then a team there. We could become more like a local player and so on. Um, and then we took markets uh, like the UK, the Nordics, Benelux um, on top of it, a bit more in, in sequence, not everything at once. Uh, but uh, we're still in the process of it. So um, Germany is still our most dominant market. And um, then depending on where you go and how much we've invested, then there's a kind of like a, a, a tiering, um, you could say. And how did you structure the sales org when you, when you expanded the sales force? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was not responsible for that international expansion. So kind of we, we took the decision that I remain responsible for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, because that was our, you know, like bread and butter, if you would say so. And um, Hanno was very careful about, uh, you know, now pulling me into other areas um, 
we hired a head of international who then kind of like was my peer to start that international expansion. And then I think about six, nine months into that, uh, we hired Geraldine, our chief revenue officer, who then kind of like took the whole go-to-market motion and um, supported us um, um, in, 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 the, in, the, in the elements where we would, you know, go international and um, uh, ha have our domestic market. But we, we took like a regionalized approach. So we basically had Southern Europe, which would um, uh, consolidate uh, a couple of countries like uh, Spain, France, Italy, and so on, Portugal, uh, in one broader region. And then we had Northern Europe, which was UK, Benelux, and the Nordics at the time. Uh, by now, this is a little bit um, reshuffled, changed, but um, overall, the approach is still the same. And now with the acquisitions going on, do you also have different teams focusing on different products to sell or different modules of your product? Because it, I think it also really got quite big, the per per person you sued when we call it like that. Yeah, um, interestingly, no. So uh, we have, we have um, um, or, sorry, yes and no. Um, when you when you when you are a, a new business seller you still sell everything because at the the core is always there so we don't sell for example just recruiting i mean there's like some rare cases where customers start with that and then move on in adding the core hr piece as well um but as we are as we're as the core is like critical to everything else you can't go without the core normally and Then on top, customers decide, okay, what else do I want? And obviously not every customer opts in for everything. Um, and it's also a little bit different. Like, are we selling to small customers or are we selling to larger customers? We have a segment of 10 to 2,000 employees and um, the, the buying process between, uh, let's say, a 30-people company and a 300 and then a 1,500 company is like very, very different. So that said, um, we obviously try to... Um, excite the customer about the full suite and try to, you know, like um, see whether this would drive the most value for them. Um, if we come to the conclusion that, you know, they pick a different approach, they want to take it more step by step, then we start step by step. If they say we want to do everything at once, let's do everything at once. So we're, we're a little bit guided by the customer. We don't try to kind of like oversell and push things into it because that leads mostly to disappointment. Um, sure, sometimes customers buy a little bit in advance because they know that, uh, you know, they, they're growing fast or something like that. But if they tell me, yeah, we don't need recruiting, I don't need to sell them recruiting, you know. Um, then let's start with the core. And if in a year from now, they also want to have the recruiting module, it comes on top. And by now we have uh, we have a new product that we launched a couple of weeks ago, Persona Payroll. Mm -hmm which is our own payroll. And that's where we are, um, where we, for the first time, deployed a specialist sales team because payroll is actually kind of like a, like our product is big and then payroll on top is big. So uh, it's it's a huge product in itself. And uh, we want to make sure um, these, are, these are less typical sellers. These are more like product experts in the sales process who support Than the existing teams, whether it's new business or or, or our existing uh, business uh, salespeople, um, to make sure that when we have more complicated questions, you know that they're taken really really well care of because payroll is a very sensitive topic and you have to get it right. Um, if it doesn't work, you know it's very binary: either it works or it doesn't. So, it's, yes. It's not... Is it for white collar workers or for blue collar workers or all? Exactly. So in Germany, um, for for those uh, who who know that field a little bit, um, there's a company called ITSG, 
Uh, ITSG is a joint venture of the social security uh, vendors or like the Krankenkassen, Arbeitslosenversicherung and so on. So, um, and um, they basically operate two things. A, a portal called SVNet. So, you know, when your tax advisor does uh, payroll for, I don't know, a company with five people, then they enter it manually there and then it gets processed. But if the tax advisor does payroll for many or your payroll provider does payroll for many, then they utilize the API from ITSG. But in order to utilize the uh, API from ITSG, you need to become certified. So they are validating the quality of your product. Um, and uh, with that, they have certain like packages, as they call it. So typically, when you start that, you certify for the core package, which entails, I think, like 80% of the German payroll use cases. Uh, but that's mostly salaries. That's less wages, which are more than common in in blue color areas. So therefore the answer is, I wouldn't hardly distinguish between blue and white color. I would distinguish between wages and salaries. Hmm. So we are mostly then focused for the beginning on salaries. We can do some wages um, if they're if they simple, but for example, if there's, let's say, complicated um, tarifverträge, um, I'm, I'm not sure if tariffs is the right transition, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. But, but basically um, those union contracts or something like that, we, we couldn't serve. Nice, because I'm super curious about that field because I'm currently doing an angel investment in a payroll solution starting in Germany and focusing on the wages side. <laughs> so maybe at some point we can get acquired from Personio. <laughs> Let's see. I might even know who you're talking about. But um, yeah, You're also an angel investor, right? So you're doing it also with Picos together, I saw? Yeah, I've, I've, now, um, I've been active for about two and a half years as an angel. Um, Picos is one of the VC firms that I'm collaborating a little bit more closely because obviously um, um, they've been early on investors in Personio. And then when I decided I want to do that, um, they've been very supportive. And um, so we support each other on deals. Um, sometimes they ask me for opinion or for support of their portfolio companies or something like that. And then other situations, they bring me on board with deals or something like this. So, um, yeah. Um, so and I would say I have like two, three VCs that I, Uh, work relatively closely with. And what's your focus as an angel investor? Do you have one? Mm. Uh, pretty much uh, what I know, um, a B2B SaaS product. So very boring. <laughs> In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Do you already have some, some companies you can talk about? Uh, that I've invested in? Yes. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting HR tool um, that I invested in last year called Empion, uh, which is, a, which is a, 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 like, a, like a talent acquisition, talent matching tool based on an, um, a yeah, machine learning algorithm. I struggle to use the word AI. Probably it would be good for, for, for promoting them, but uh, you know, everything is AI at the moment and they, they, they've done that or started that before that whole shit popped up um, in, in this uh, broader fashion. Um, so um, they're, they're doing really interesting things. Um, then, uh, you know, I've invested already a while ago in a company called Sastrify that are doing uh, procurements, uh, you know, for SaaS um, or what else is there around? Um, I've, I've made like 17 or 18 investments. Um, I mean, there's there's also a company called Recommendy there, um, kind of like a... Um, uh, 
technology vendor for smaller e-commerce shops to bring their um, shop capabilities onto the Amazon marketplace capabilities without having to go onto the marketplace. Because I think uh, Amazon is for many people a very important source, but um, it's also very risky if you only sell over uh, Amazon because then, um, you know, once something happens uh, that is... Uh, <laughs> not supposed to happen, then you lose your you lose your primary revenue stream and so on. And um, there, there, there's a few more. So probably it's it's unfair if I now just pick and choose. But um, uh, there's uh, there's a couple. And um, uh, yeah, from a from a scope, it's mostly B two B SaaS. Uh, but uh, like I'm not focused on sales tools. Probably I'm one of the most skeptical persons when it comes down to um, SaaS sales tools uh, because I. I that's that's my daily doing and i know where the shortfalls are and in other areas maybe i'm naive positively naive enough to overlook those shortfalls <laughs> yeah that's maybe good that's maybe good for for change <laughs> <laughs> um and when when we just look back again for the transformation of 500 to more than 10000 customers at prosunio yeah. in terms of hiring what was your transformational or learning journey there because i think you hired many many reps and many many managers be below yeah. your scope I, I think for us the fundamental element was that we decided that we want to go this junior education route because that allowed us to hire more people without experience if we would have started now to compete with big scale-ups and so on other larger tech companies we would have had a, a like a really difficult time, um, you know, like hiring those people at the right quantities at the right price point. So um, obviously hiring juniors comes with, you know, like lower salaries, but you need to invest. And we felt more comfortable around that because we then knew how those people would be educated. What are we getting after two, three, four years? Uh, how will the how will the team look like then when we continue with that journey? And um, I mean, a talent acquisition team, uh, including employer branding, including uh, uh, campus recruiting and so on, you all had to have these things in place uh, because if, uh, if you don't have a function um, that supports you properly there, as a hiring manager, you can't hire a couple hundred people um, without yeah, that. Exactly. And you, you cannot just hire all the time. You also need to manage, right? You also need to make sure that you hit the targets and so on. Correct. You need to deliver results. Let's put it this way. Um, I'm, I'm sure managing is part of, of the game. Leading is part of the game. But I think the, the biggest job of a first-line manager in sales is actually training uh, his or her team uh, because th th that's the main focus. How do you make your team successful? And that kind of like cascades more the like even further higher up the chain um, just with then different different exercises. So I don't need to like teach my uh, direct reports on cold calling or something like that. Uh, but I need to teach uh, them uh, on, you know, how to build a business case if they think investment in a certain area is, is, is you know, like important and would accelerate our growth or uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, how to then operate um, a team at a different level. And when you look at also back at all the seller you led, what are the attributes of the really outstanding performers? Is there a pattern even? Yeah, I think there's definitely some, I, I'm not sure if I would call it a pattern because um, there's a couple of traits that are, that are very important. Um, and 
I'll try to be as comprehensive as possible. I'm sure I'll miss a few. But first of all, um, you know, people need to be motivated. So if they have no reason to do all of these things that they need to do, then they won't do them. That's that's a very fundamental element. And regardless of your salary, you can't you can't you can't inject them. So one of my most important questions in the interview process is what is motivating you? Why? Like, why are you getting up in the morning? Or if this wouldn't be there, would you stay in bed? Because people then often say, oh, I want to make the customer happy. That's good. You know, like that's on a, on a certain level, a good motivation. But that's not the core motivation why people get up. Like, so if you couldn't make the customer happy, you would stay in bed and not get up? No. Okay. So I'll try to dig around that. So motivation is one piece. The other piece is uh, the ability to learn, to learn fast. Um, the third piece is coachability. Uh, you need to be able to learn through others because if you're not coachable, if you're if you're defensive on feedback from others, uh, you have a disadvantage. Um, then, um, and these are things that you probably um, have to a certain extent, but can develop further is tenacity and grit. So when things get hard, you still need to keep going. You know, there's always a saying: the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is simply that the successful person like got up once more after they fell down. And in sales, that's like 100% true. Um, and then um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of you need to be dedicated to do what's necessary. Uh, and when I mean what's necessary, obviously in moral and ethical boundaries, uh, you shouldn't do stupid things. Um, but, you know, when, you, when, when, the, when the months or the quarter is closing, you know, and... I had negotiations with with CEOs until up to I don't know 11:59 p.m. and we got the contract in at 11:59 p.m. on the last day. So if you if you turn off your notebook at six seven o'clock and say okay let's call it a day like I tried everything to get in then actually you're missing a couple of hours and you know when you are in in, a, in an environment like us you need to compress time as much as possible. So if you don't go those steps you'll lose. So that's that's a very important thing. And um, obviously there's like communication skills and da-di-da-di-da. Um, but those kind of like traits, they're really like an important fundamental element from an attitude perspective. I understood. Um, thank you, Oliver. So what, what are also some guests you would recommend me to have on the show, which I don't know yet, but you know? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Phew. I would probably have to think about that um, um, and don't don't have it on top of my mind. Obviously, there's, I think, uh, you know, what you have often in, in, in podcasts, you have a lot of uh, founders uh, for valid reasons. Like, I don't want to discard that. But I think by now we have also very interesting senior operators yes. um, in, the, in the startup ecosystem. And I mean, you had a few already on your show and I would simply recommend try to find more of those games um, because ultimately, uh, um, you know, They're also doing big parts of that important work. Um, they're not just, you know, like um, lucky people who've, who who happen to to jump on the right rocket ship. They're actually fueling the rocket ship. Exactly. And not always having the stage um, primary. Um, so I think there are really, as you said, a lot of hidden gems. Um, so maybe yeah. you can, when you think about, about someone, um, just ping. I'll get back to you. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I have a couple of gems in my team, but um, let's. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll see who else comes uh, on top of my mind. Yes. And what are some final words 
um, for somebody who also wants to build a sales <clears throat> unit from 500 customers to more than 10,000 customers? <laughs> um, I think it goes back to those traits that I've outlined. So, uh, you know, when you are in this uh, hyper-growth VC-backed type of game, you you have to strike a balance between how do I build it right for scale and how do I operate scrappy enough to get to the next stage. It's a little bit like a computer game. So I don't want to I don't want to diminish, you know, the 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 seriousness of what, what people are doing, but on the other side we're not we're not we're not, you know, saving humanity or something like that. So we're somewhere in between saving humanity and 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 a video game. And a video game typically works like that. So you can think about the end boss as much as you want. If you don't make it through the levels to get to the end boss, You'll never get to the end boss, so that's 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 a very important piece, and um, you you need to constantly balance this um, because you need to do what's necessary. You need to deliver the results, and you need to be smart around that. So um, it's um, it's it's hard to make it tangible without you know like a concrete example. Let's say your business is exactly here and there, so there's then definitely specific recommendations that you can think of, but it's really the, the the motivation. Why are you doing it? Like, do you have the right drive? Do you have the right intention on this is what you need to do? And like, are you willing to do it? Or do you feel like when you have the first setbacks, why the fuck am I doing this? So um, it's a mindset thing. Cool. Thank you. <laughs>